This is the Ritz and Cures podcast. Time for Ritz and Cures on this Tuesday evening. And a little later in the hour, we'll be joined by Jill Gallagher, who is the CEO of VATCHO, which is the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. And we'll be talking about that gap, that massive gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous health and what indeed can and should be done to reduce that. Also the importance of culture to health within Aboriginal communities. But first up, we're going to be talking about something that's very much a pertinent subject of discussion, not just in Victoria, but in other states across Australia as well. And we'll be talking about um, legislation around uh, voluntary assisted dying. Joining me in the studio is Katie Miller, who's a Melbourne lawyer. Hi, Katie. Nice to see you. Lovely to see you, Lindy. And Associate Professor Steve Ellen, who's a psychiatrist and he's the Director of Psychosocial Oncology at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Hello, Steve. G'day, Lindy. It's nice to have you along. Thank you. So starting, we're going to talk to Julian Gardner in just a moment about um, a, a, a way in which the public can express their views about this particular piece of legislation um, and indeed hear, hear more information about what the legislation entails because we're at a really interesting stage. I know it was talked about last week, but it's, things have changed even since then, haven't they, Katie, where we've had this marathon session within the Victorian Parliament um, and now it's past that lower house, and now it will go to the to the upper house. But for those who are who are just coming to um, to this conversation, indeed, for people in Tasmania who perhaps haven't been a part of it because it, it's been happening in another state, can you just quickly bring us up to speed of where we are at? So, as you said, we've passed the lower house, so that's um, the first step. And I should say, the fact that we're even talking about that as a momentous event um, just shows how this is still a very hotly contested bill. Um, it was sort of fifty fifty about whether it was going to pass the lower house. It no, now goes to the Upper House, the Legislative Council, um, and that is where it's going to get even more interesting uh, because we do have a crossbench um, in our Victorian Upper House. Um, there are a number of parties that sit on that um, crossbench, and again, it, it represents you know the full range of views. So it's still very much a live issue in Parliament, and that's because it is still very much a live issue in the community. So um, the debate is by no means over, and you know um, it's something that we all need to keep talking about. So where is it at in terms of the Upper House? Is it is it is it tight? Abled? Is it how? What's the what's the process from here? Uh, so the process is that having passed the. Um lower house. Uh, it is essentially introduced for the same three stages of reading in the upper house. So first um, stage and then the first reading and then the second reading is where all the action really happens. Uh, there is usually a couple of weeks in between where everyone sort of catches their breath. Uh, and so, but essentially it is the same process that you get in the lower house. So they'll have time on the, on the agenda that they will allocate for this debate to happen. And it's very similar to what happens in the lower house. Is there an expectation that it will go for, what was it, 26 hours or something that, that that the that the sitting was in the lower house, there is in terms of trying to, to, to come to some kind of resolution, is there an expectation that it will be something similar in the uh, House? It, it sort of depends on what else the, the Legislative Council has on their agenda. Um, so part of the reason why the Lower House you know, needed to have these marathon sittings is because they had a full agenda of other things right. that they needed to, to deal with. And so uh, they you know needed to sort of squeeze it into to three days. They've Should allocated we, a couple of weeks for it in the up house. They have. Yep. Okay. It, it's interesting too that there's, this is still, a, as you say, Katie, such a such a public discussion. And I think for a lot of people, there was sort of an expectation that once it had passed 
albeit as you say in in, a, in terms of very close run thing but passing it in the in the lower house that kind of would put things to bear that there would be a case that the public now would just have to sit back and wait to see what the upper house was was going to do but that's not really the case is it i mean that julian gardner's with us who's a senior lawyer and a member of the ministerial advisory panel on this voluntary assisted dying legislation julian's good to have you along Hi, Lindy. Good to talk to you. And tell tell me a little bit about this this public seminar that's coming up and what its purpose is. Well, it's this Thursday at 6 o'clock at the Deacon Edge in Federation Square. It's being run by the Victoria Law Foundation, and I think it's important to, to emphasise that that's not an advocacy body. It has no position on the issue. Its role is to sort of educate the public. And so it's lined up uh, three other speakers together with myself, um, to provide information, to answer people's questions, give them an opportunity to to, to ask. So there's a uh, Dr. King, who's a uh, palliative care specialist, Kathy Wilson, who's a lawyer experienced in uh, succession and elder law, and Stephen Amsterdam, who is a well-known author, but also a palliative care nurse. And uh, then I rounded out with uh, a bit of legal, further legal perspective. So is this conversation, uh, uh, you talk about it exp- being able to explain to, to people with, with questions that, that they might have. Is that to explain what, the le- what is involved within the legislation that has passed the lower house? Well, yes, that's... that's um, Rather than a conversation about the pros and cons of assisted dying in the first place. Well, that, that may occur, but the, the major function is to... Uh, educate and inform the public. Now, if there are people who therefore want to explore certain arguments one way or the other, uh, and that is seen as educative, well, you know, that, that obviously can be part of the conversation. I guess my my, my question is really around the timing of this. Yes. To, to was this whether this would be more pertinent three weeks ago? Well, uh, Lindy, if you'd had uh, hindsight, you might have organised it differently, <laughs> but. This was organised by the Victoria Lawn Foundation a long time ago right. before anybody knew exactly the timing. Got it. And at yeah. that stage, it was thought that maybe the bill would be debated a little bit later in the I year. I understand. Thank you. But yep. uh, it's actually landed right in the middle. It so has very much. It's still relevant. Yeah. And in fact, I would actually say the timing is, is really great because I think that one of the things we discussed last week was that it's not until you actually see the bill that you really understand what is the shape that we're talking about here. And so I think for some people, they can't really engage in the debate until yeah. they kind of know, well, what is the shape of this thing that we're looking at? So in some ways, it's a perfect time. Um, the, the issue is by no means a done deal. Um, I understand there are still a lot of conversations happening, uh, you know, with the members of the upper house, um, both, you know, between members, but also between the members and their constituents, you know, the people who live in their communities. Uh, so, you know, even if you are only coming to this issue now, um, you're certainly not late to the debate. Okay, I think that's a very good point because uh, people now have got the bill, they can see the safeguards that are in it and uh, they can ask questions about those safeguards and whether or not they think they are sufficient. Julian, what do you think of uh, how the media is going with it? Because in many ways... You know, it got a it got a bit of coverage in the lead up to the lower house, but not an enormous amount. But then the events of the lower house really grabbed the media's attention, especially the twenty six hour debate. And now it's all over all newspapers. How do you think? Um, how do you think the uh, coverage is re- reflecting what's genuinely going on in the bill and the debate? Look, I think the uh, the coverage has actually been very responsible. 
it, it has, by and large, been factually accurate. I mean, there's always journalists sort of take a bit of a shortcut on things and summarise things which, which don't quite get it all down. But I think there's been a, uh, a lot of views put on either side, so I think there's been a, a balanced debate in the media. I think, actually, they've done a very good job. And uh, I, I think that it has, really, for, for legislation which is often a very dry subject, had a lot of public exposure and a lot of discussion, as it should. Just explain to us too, Julian, how, how the Upper House may work through this. And pardon my ignorance in all this, but are they able to come back to the Lower House with suggested amendments to the current legislation and therefore would it have to there go, go back to debate within the Lower House and be passed again? Yes. That could happen. Yes, you're, you're, you're correct. In that, the upper house could decide to introduce some amendments. It's up to the lower house as to whether or not it accepts them. Um, so this process could go for a while. The, the other thing is that the upper house may well go through a process, as happened in the lower house, of going through clause by clause, uh, examining the bill in minute detail rather than just having a you know, yes or no vote. So going back to the forum itself, yes. it's, it's a forum where people can ask questions of that panel? That's right. Um, it's uh, it's open to the public, it is free, but you do need to make a booking. Um, and if anybody's interested in finding out more or making a booking, I think the easiest is just to Google Victoria Law Foundation. Um, and I think it's an excellent uh, initiative by the Foundation to ensure that ordinary people, anybody in the community, can get more information. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, I, and I just want to ask a final question of you mm. in terms of your experience of, of this whole process, having been a part of the advisory panel on, on this legislation, watching, watching how it's unfolding now within, within Parliament itself. How, how, is, how has that experience been for you? Look, I think um, the, I, I can't think, and I've been involved in a number of areas of law reform, of another piece of legislation that has had a more thorough and exhaustive consultation process over a period of almost three years. And I think that what came out of it was a very sensible and conservative bill. And I suppose I see that some of the arguments being put by opponents uh, appear at times as though they haven't read the bill. And uh, I think that you know, when people say there are no safeguards or inadequate safeguards, I think it ignores the reality of what happens in medical practice. And Steve could no doubt comment on this. Decisions are made every day at our end-of-life decisions. They're made on behalf of people who don't have competence. They're made by people who are competent. I mean, for example, if I decide that I'm sick of daily um, dialysis and, and it's, it's all too burdensome and hopeless and I'm not going to get cured anyway, and I decide I'm going to stop the dialysis, that is a decision to die. Now, where are the safeguards that are people crying out, crying out for, for that kind of decision? In contrast, voluntary assisted dying is loaded with a whole number of safeguards to ensure that you're properly informed, you are competent, that other people have checked this, you have two independent doctors, and on and on and on. So I must say I find um, the debate at times frustrates me because I have had experience of these end-of-life decisions, and, and I, I can tell you that there is no other form of medical decision, medical treatment decision that has the same degree of safeguards. 
Julian, we look forward to hearing your views and others at this forum in the, the next few days. Thank you very much for being a part of the show this evening. Thank you, Lindy. Julian Gardner, who's a senior lawyer and was a member of the Ministerial Advisory Panel on Voluntary Assisted Dying, the legislation that is currently before the Victorian Parliament. This is Ritz and Cures, where we look at medical and legal issues of the day, not necessarily all in one stint. Uh, sometimes it is the way that it works out. Katie Miller is here, a Melbourne lawyer and psychiatrist, Steve Ellen. Uh, my name's Lindy Burns, and um, you've you've got some interesting things to tell us a little bit about the Supreme Court. Katie, what's going on? So I thought this would be a nice antidote to some of the very heavy stuff we've been talking about both tonight and last week about voluntary assisted dying. And it reminded me that, you know, when I'm sort of feeling really sort of overwhelmed by legal issues, um, I go to my favourite place in legal Victoria, and that is the Supreme Court of Victoria. Um, now, before you all say, oh, my God, what a nerd. <laughs> Steve I was Garner. already thinking that. No, your face just gave it away. There, there's a particular part. So, I mean, we talk a lot about the Supreme Court and the work that it does, but the building itself is actually quite beautiful. It's part of the heritage that we have because of uh, the gold rush. So it's one of the big, beautiful um, buildings that was built in, in the 1800s. Um, and there are parts of it that are quite amazing. They're very quiet um, and they're real sort of little oases um, in amongst the sort of hustle bustle of the city, which and that's the part of it that I really love. Uh, and, you know, if you've never been to the Supreme Court of Victoria, um, if you've never been to the Supreme Court Library, uh, I just want to let everyone know that there's never a better time to go to it uh, because this Katie's week... Because Katie's the only person there. <laughs> well, as I said, it's very quiet. Um, but this week, the Supreme Court um, has decided that people can now take photos in the Law Library of Victoria um, with their you know, with their devices, with their iPads and tablets and, and things like that, which is the first time. And why that's, I think that's, you know, a little bit sort of special is that um, although we have this sort of principle that, you know, courts sort of do their business, um, you know, in the open and, and in public, I think that courts have been quite cautious in the past about how much we allow technology to then take those sorts of that open justice and sort of broadcast it out generally. Um, so I think this is another example of the Supreme Court um, acknowledging that, you know, times have moved on and that people love nothing better than taking a quick selfie. Uh, and they've said, you can do that in the law library. Um, you still can't do that if you're in the courtroom. So for anyone who might have jury service, um, you do, you really should still leave your phone. You can't do it selfies just sitting there. No about selfies with the judge. The first they witness. really frown on selfies with the Fair judge, enough. selfies with the witness. So, But it is a beautiful building um, and so, you know, I'd encourage people to, to get down there. Um, if you can't get down there in person, uh, the Law Library is also now on Instagram so you can actually see this beautiful building. Okay, I need to look that up. That's just great. So Law excited. Library Vic. Is this your best friend on Instagram? Do you like every <laughs> post right. they put up? They are amazing <laughs> hey, photos. Tell me though, where is the Law Library? I mean, I know I've seen the dome, but I don't know. Where, where do you get in? And how? So you can basically enter the Supreme Court from two entrances. There's a Lonsdale Street entrance and a Williams Street entrance. You do have to go through security um, that all of our courts now have. Um, but it's essentially right in the middle. So the way the Supreme Court was designed is you've got the Law Library in the middle, which is circular. And then around is a square, which are all of the, the courtrooms. And anyone can go in, is it? So anyone can go in library. during business hours. So free, they, in, free internet, like all the other libraries in Melbourne? There, are, There is free internet, yes. Wow. Free wireless okay. internet. So on, on Instagram, it's Law Library Vic, 
which is you know hardly surprising. The photos are very beautiful. It is a beautiful building. Yeah, and that's very nice. There's also a lot of history about it, um, and you wouldn't get this just by sort of wandering around um, during the day because it is a place of work during the day. Uh, but the Supreme Court does run regular heritage tours, and there is one happening this Friday at eleven o'clock. Uh, and the law library itself also regularly has events when you know people can can come in. Uh, and I think they've got a half hour heritage tour happening on the fourteenth of November. Uh, and they also regularly have lunchtime concerts by lawyers who go in and sing and play music. So it's oh, a very wow. happening place. It's so happening. And there are dungeons. There are dungeons in the Supreme Court. Are they called dungeons? Dungeon cells, you know. They're cells. You know, what, what, what's it, what, you know, a, a rose by any other name. <laughs> you know, uh, I reckon, though, the libraries in the city are under-recognised full stop. The State Library is so amazing. And then the little library on Flinders Lane, oh, it's, well, it's about five stories tall, it's not little, but they're the, the same. City library. Free internet, free everything, magazines, papers, books, talks going on all the time. They're such good places to drop into. Well, not as good as the Law Library. Well, can I say, Steve, I mean, the State Library, I mean, don't get me wrong, I loved hanging out in the State Library in the 1990s, but, I mean, it's just become so mainstream now. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. You're like, um, you know, normally we expect Melbourne, you know, oh, that coffee in that place is terrible. I wouldn't drink a latte there in a million years. You're like that with li- with libraries. Oh, that library's so mainstream. Oh, <laughs> And they're on Instagram, or they actually are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you very it's much gold. for that. And so just for the next tour, what, you were giving some uh, dates about that. So the next tour of the Supreme Court um, will be this Friday at 11 o'clock. Uh, and if you're more interested in the Law Library, uh, there'll be a tour on the 14th of November. And again, if you go to the Supreme Court's uh, website, you can find out details. Um, of each of those tours. And uh, speaking of events coming up, just a reminder, um, our conversation with Julian Gardner just a few minutes ago talking about a public forum which is being presented by the Victorian Law Foundation at Federation Square this coming Thursday evening. You need to book by going to the Law Society website. Is that where they're going? Uh, no, so if you go to the uh, Supreme Court um, website... Uh, and sorry, go- this is for the oh, sorry. For I've Julian's got the website the if website. you want. Yeah. It's Victoria Law Foundation, one word, yep. .org.au. So www.victorialawfoundation. And uh, you just you can book through them. It's fr- a free event. You just book and, uh, you know, you've got a spot at Deacon Edge, which is that amazing... Ve- I've been to lots of talks there. It's an amazing venue um, in Fed Square. Yeah, it is. Beautiful. It used to be called the Glass House or something like that. Well, it is all glass 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 around it. It's all glass. This is Ritz and Cures. My name is Lindy Burns, together with Katie Miller and Steve Ellen. And in a moment, we'll be joined by our special guest this evening by Jill Gallagher, who's one of Victoria's leading advocates for Aboriginal health, education and culture. This is Ritz and Cures, which is a regular look that we take at the medical and legal worlds. And our special guest tonight is Jill Gallagher. Jill is a Gunditjmara woman from Western Victoria. She's worked within, led and advocated for the Victorian Aboriginal community all of her life, pretty much. Since 2001, she's been the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, or VATCHO, which is the major organisation addressing Aboriginal health issues in Victoria. Her work was instrumental in achieving support for the vital Statement of Intent, which was signed by the Premier in 2008, on behalf of the state government to close the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians on things like life expectancy, educational achievement, and employment opportunities. In 2010, she was included in the Victorian Honour Roll of Women and in 2013 was awarded an Order of Australia in recognition 
of her strong and effective leadership in Aboriginal health. Understandably there, she sits on numerous committees, including the Aboriginal Health and Wellbeing Expert Panel, the Victorian Advisory Council on Koori Health and the Victorian Premier's Aboriginal Advisory Committee. And she's our special guest tonight on Ritz and Cures. Jill, it's great to meet you. Thank you very much, Thanks Mindy. for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure. The main role of VATCHO, when people ask you, what does it do? What do you say to them? Yeah. Okay, so what we do, we're a peak agency. We don't provide health services. We advocate for the 30 members that we've got, and they're all Aboriginal organisations throughout the state of Victoria. The majority of them run health clinics for Aboriginal people at a local level, um, but not just health clinics, Lindy. They also, in Victoria, we're quite unique to the rest of the state, to the rest of the country. Um, we have Aboriginal co-ops. So a co-op will run run a clinic, a health service. They'll also have housing where uh, they rent out housing uh, to Aboriginal people at a local level, which they own the housing. Um, so it's like public housing. They run cultural programs. They run drug and alcohol programs, SEWB, social emotional wellbeing programs, um, and also um, employment programs for Aboriginal people on the ground. So they're, they're that um, they try to address the social determinants of health. I'd imagine a lot of those things are overlapping. Yes, very they? much so. Yeah. yeah, it's that wraparound service that we all try to uh, achieve. So what do you say, there's 30 of those across the state? We have 20, 23 full members that actually have a clinic. The others are associate members and they might be like a community hub um, um, or a, um, you know, to provide one service. So, yeah. So when you say you're sort of an umbrella organisation We're a number, yes. So do you, do you look at what what they're doing and sort of think, help if things are, if yes. they're struggling a bit well, or not make a, yeah, advice? Not a, yes, very much so. We do some of that capacity development, even though there's still that capacity out there. It's how we enhance it. But one of our main roles is that is try to assist governments whether it be state government, local governments or Commonwealth government, uh, to make good decisions around the health and wellbeing or health and wellbeing outcomes for Aboriginal people in Victoria. So we're a very strong advocate uh, in that area um, and we partner up with other um, peak bodies such as VCOS, uh, other Aboriginal organisations such as VAI, which is an Aboriginal peak body for education in this state, Backer, childcare, and a whole range of organisations that we ha- that we need to partner with, because we can't close that life expectancy gap without the support of everyone. How big is it? How's that? How big is that gap? Well, the gap is um, still ten years, really. And there's a ten year life ex- expectancy gap, in particular in Victoria. Um, it's closing slowly. Um, we have made some movement in the education gap, uh, year 12 attainment. There has been some movement there, which is really good. But if we continue to close the gap at the rate we're currently going, they're basically saying it'll take us another 495 years. <laughs> so, you know, we do need to do something. We need to be bold, um, and I think in Victoria, uh, this government is being bold on many fronts, um, but we still need to be, a, like today, I attended the uh, launch of the um, um, the ballot uh, Murup, 
which is a statewide framework for SEWB, for Aboriginal people in Victoria. That's mental health and uh, social emotional wellbeing. So we, and there were some um, uh, resources. The first trench of resources was announced to go with it to help implement it. And that was done. That was developed. The solutions were developed in partnership with us as Aboriginal people. And that's, that's, that's important. It, it sounds like it's that seems to be the most obvious thing that yes. you know you would talk to the people to whom you are going to provide those services. But it sounds like that's not always been the case. Not always been the case, unfortunately, Lindy. Yeah. No. What do you reckon we're like? I appreciate there's a lot of um, Aboriginal health services. What do you reckon we're like in the general health services? In, you know, like our big hospitals. I've worked in I don't know half a dozen big hospitals around Australia, and uh, certainly in Victoria, I think we don't recognise. We don't even know half the time in Victoria whether the patients we're dealing with have an Aboriginal heritage. We don't have... You know, what do you reckon... What, what would you yes. say for our scorecard in the general health system? And I'm not picking on any one no, hospital. No, I've no, worked no. in about six, as yeah, I say. Yeah. Look, the, the, the scorecard for the general health system, we need a lot of work. We've started getting Aboriginal liaison officers. You train them, don't you? Does Vetro uh, train the ALOs, the Aboriginal... Uh, we offices. provide some training, but no, they don't have any formal training. We, Avacho is an RTO, and we provide training um, for Aboriginal health workers uh, who are based in our services. We are looking at training um, drug and alcohol workers, mm -hmm. um, but we also want to provide training to mainstream services, yep. such as the big hospitals, yeah. such as the uh, mainstream um, health services. Because it was a massive difference for me working in Brisbane compared to Victoria. Brisbane, you know, a, 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 an Aboriginal patient came in and an Aboriginal liaison officer would be there within an hour, mm. whereas it's, we don't have that level of service in Victoria. No, we don't. But we're getting there. I think the, there is a will from hospitals, but they, they struggle with how. In terms of what, finding the people to fulfil those no, roles? No, no, well, work, workforce is an issue, but it's, it's about what do we need to change to make a difference. You know, Vacho, we provide cultural safety training. Now, a lot of people use the term cultural awareness, cultural education, but cultural safety training is about how do we help the hospitals change their systems. It's not about, and their attitudes, both at front desk delivery right up through to the board. Uh, so it's not about just making the boards aware. It's about how do we help them to make the changes on the ground. That's what cultural safety training is about. Can I get, sorry, Katie, I know you've got a question, about it, but I just want to stay on this for a moment because I want it, if we can, I want an example of, uh, without pointing at any kind of, you know, part of a hospital system or a particular hospital, but what what's not being done? I'm, I know I'm sitting here as yeah. a privileged white person yeah. who doesn't have okay. that experience, okay. but what goes yeah. on yeah. that needs to be changed? Okay. What happens, uh, and, um, okay, for his, historically, Aboriginal people, especially older Aboriginal people, don't like hospitals. That's where a lot of our babies were taken away. Um, so the mistrust, yep. that's one thing. Um, racism is another. Yep. Um, and once you've been felt made to feel inferior, you don't want to go back there. But it's not only just made to feel inferior, inferior, it's also about how does the system treat you? Like a lot of our people don't access all the services of a hospital or they're non-compliant 
with uh, follow-up. And that's because there's no one there to guide them and help them through that very complex system of a big hospital. Absolutely. Yep. So the three areas, and I think it is, uh, tackle racism, the fear that our people still... It's in living memory. It's in living memory. I mean, I won't mention hospital, but there was, you know, a, a, a well-known documented case where Aboriginal women were made to birth outside of the hospital because of that racism. And that's in living memory. We're not talking about 200 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, so it's that sort of fear that we've got to get our people through, but we also got to get the hospital to change their attitudes um, and to ask the question whether you're an Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander descent. Yes, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, I'm, there will be circumstances, Steve, I imagine, whereby that person is unable to answer that question for whatever reason they're injured, there's a mental health issue or something, but the majority of cases would be able to answer yeah, that. Yeah, 99.9% of people, you know, the odd person couldn't, you know, unconscious and whatever, yeah, yeah. but no. nearly everyone could, but yes. we don't ask it. I, I mean, when I say no. we, I should, I should, you know, I don't ask it. Yeah. I'm not used to asking it. And... Um, there's, and there's lots of examples of things like that over the decades that we weren't used to asking and so we didn't recognise the importance yeah. until we got educated about you have to start asking. Yeah. Mental health full stop was like that 25 oh. years ago. No one asked about it. Now, of course, it's massive and everyone asks and is surprised. Yeah. We, we, you know, um, yeah, we're just not in the habit. I and shouldn't blame others. I'm not in the habit. No, no, a, I'm not the only one. We've mm. done a lot of work with hospitals to to educate them around asking the question but it's still not filtering through and I don't know what I'm struggling to find out what that barrier I think it's staff turnover and I know you're you're desperate Katie too. <laughs> no no I was actually <laughs> going to say that we have got exactly the same challenge ah. um, in the the legal sector so we are also you know we, we also have this um, you know this problem that we haven't asked the question we've made assumptions one way or the other and that has an absolute direct effect on the service that we deliver we miss things because we didn't ask the question or we assume that somebody needs a certain service because we've made an assumption about their yes. their background and i think a lot of it and i say this as someone also who has been brought up in a way where you didn't ask the question and when i was first told you need to ask someone if they identify as aboriginal or torres strait islander i i was really confronted by that it's a really challenging thing mm. and i was sort of like but what do I, I? I literally had to say, I don't know how to ask the question. I'm so afraid I'll say the wrong thing that I say nothing. And of course, when you actually sort of say it like that, you go, "Hang on a second, it is just a question. It's just a question. You're asking a question. Just yeah. a question. Yeah. yeah. You'd ask any uh, in any other hospital form. You'd ask, "What nationality are you? Um, you know. So it's just a question. But can I say there are some Aboriginal people that won't answer that question. For the fear of being treated differently or or um, made to feel inferior. Yeah. So what what do you do in that? Well, it's an education process that we need to undertake well. with our people yeah. also. I mean, my mum, who is ninety one, ninety one, yes. Um, she says, "Well, why why do I have to tell them that I'm Aboriginal, Jill?" I said, "Mum, because it's important that you kn they know that you're Aboriginal." Um, and some, you know, so we can one the data, but two, 
what's the trip what you're coming in for and know that your cultural differences need to be recognized and applied to yeah like any other culture yeah absolutely and, and i think it's also about not just sort of stopping with that one question but understanding that this is actually just one question and really what we need to have is a conversation because it's not just about sort of saying oh well i've got my answer and now i've stereotyped a person but it's also about understanding what services might this person already be using in the community and that might be part of what's a good health plan legal plan for this for this person yeah yeah, yeah. Steve. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, one of the things I've said, the, some of the work I've seen you do is around, you know, around the cultural aware, uh, uh, <laughs> cultural <laughs> safety. Why is culture so important to health? And I want to sort of bring this on to okay. your concept of well-being too. Yeah. A very, very respected Aboriginal elder, a woman uh, who is still alive today, has done a lot of work in Aboriginal health here in Victoria. And I'll mention her name, because um, Arnie Melva Johnson from Echuca. Um, she said to me a long, long time ago, she said, Jill, we grow our burrows, that's our children, if we grow our burrows strong in culture, they're resilient. They c- anything that life throws at them, they can handle. Um colonisation had a big, a big impact on our peoples here in, Victor- in in Australia, but I'm talking about Victoria, had a big impact, you know, and it was, it was, it was rapid and it was brutal. Um, and so being culturally strong as an Aboriginal person from the very early years, it makes you stronger for whatever life wants to throw at you. Um, and it's about that pride, yep. that identity. You know who you are. You know who you are. You know where you're from. I mean, that's why when you look at the um, mental health rates within the Victorian Aboriginal community, are very high. You know, you look at the suicide rates, a double, a double than non-Aboriginal Victorians. Um, it's that pride. It's no, you belong somewhere. And the stolen generation didn't... Um, you know, that had a big impact on families. Uh, and when people come back into the fold, if they don't know their culture and where they're from and where they belong, that's really important. Where you belong, um, that has a big a- impact on your mental health, anxiety, depression, a whole gamut of health issues. One of, oh, sorry. No, one of the things I was really, you know, I've noticed since, you know, I've taken more, paid more attention, is the concept of well-being within the Aboriginal culture in particular. And I reckon our hospitals, you know, we're only just opening up well-being centres in our hospital in the last five years, really. Whereas, you know, it sort of seems, um, you know, that was intertwined, if I'm saying the word right, entwined, whatever the word is, Mm. um, in the, in Aboriginal concepts of health much sooner. I think we've been slow to the game. What do you reckon? Well, I I, I believe you are too. I mean, our organisations in Victoria have evolved to to try and deal with the person as a whole, the holistic approach Mm. to the health and well-being. So you might be healthy, you might, you know, you might might be healthy, but you might not have a house or a job um, or or belong or feel that you don't belong. So we want to we want to address that person. All that person's well-being. So most of our co-ops attempt to do that in a holistic way. So there's no wrong door in a co-op. You go through that door, and it's not just about whether you've got the flu or whether you've got a broken arm. 
Um, it's about, have you got a, somewhere to live? Have you got a job? Um, um, you know, what's your smoking rate? What's your drug and alcohol issues? It's that holistic well-being of an individual and culture is part of that well-being. I was thinking about how how pertinent that is to health in general as you were talking, Steve, as well, and you, Jill, yeah. about how it, it's that preemptive approach to health, isn't it, rather than the reactive approach that we have been going through for, what, 150 mm. years? I will happily um, fix someone's bone and send them back out and they haven't got anywhere to live. Yeah. And they'll sleep there. And know, wonder why and that's you know, not I mean, healing so well. Yeah, you know, we, we, I think we're getting a lot better at it. Oh, we don't, are. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but I think we're slow to the game compared to um, the Aboriginal culture. Yes. And, and so does that form of, um, I suppose, health and wellbeing and, and sort of medical service, um, does that also change the way... That does it change the relationship between the service and, and the individual? I mean, ours is very much: you have a problem, you get it fixed, you turn back out the door. It could be years before you next see your GP. I mean, is there a different sort of relationship between the service it is, and the individual? It, it, it certainly is. It's not just service delivery. Um, the co-ops are not just seen as oh, I go and see the doctor. The co-ops are seen will they'll fix everything for me, um, and because. We are less than 2% of the population. Um, we know, you know, I mean, I did, I did six months down at Gunditj Mara Co-op in Warrnambool as CEO uh, and everyone knew me and I knew everyone else. So everyone that comes through your door, you know, at a personal level, at a community level, you know who they are, you know who the families are, you know what the issues are. And that's the beauty of treating our people. We know what the issues are. And so it's not just the culture that actually becomes part of this, but it's also the community. The community, exactly right. It's um, the co-ops are seen as the community own them. They're not just a service provider. How much is th the fact that the Aboriginal people represent only 2% of the population of the state, how much is that one of the major issues here to, to get to, to be enough of a voice to have enough of a groundswell to have you know enough of a place in order to be heard or and and is that getting better is is that voice being heard more now it ha I, you're right it ha it, over the years look, i've been I'm, I'm 62 years old so i've been working in aboriginal health and wellbeing for a long time uh, I've been working in the Victorian Aboriginal community for a long time, apart from living in it. So, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that minority voice was a squeak. Yeah. Now, what the, no, the difference that I notice, um, we, are, we are becoming a very strong voice. Um, and the current government here in Victoria are starting to listen. I mean, they have self-determination on the agenda. They have treaty on the agenda. Um, they're talking about, I remember Premier Andrews gave a speech once and in that speech he said, we want to make our table your table. We don't want to invite you to the table. It's got to be your, we come to your table. Uh, and that's always stayed with me. Uh, and then I, you see the change. You see the change of attitude. attitude. I mean, just because we're a minority... Um, it doesn't mean our issues are, in, uh, are less important or any less real. Um, I mean, when you, 
I firmly believe that Victorian Aboriginal cultures, and there's a number of Aboriginal cultures, we're not just one group, um, there's over 32 different language groups in Victoria alone. Um, we've got something precious that we can offer other Victorians, and that's a very strong, longest-living culture in the world, and we want all Victorians to embrace that and value that. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how much we don't know. Exactly. <laughs> Every time I have a conversation with an Aboriginal representative, elder, creative, Every single time I walk away going, I know nothing about what your experiences are, but also what I can benefit from, yeah. what I can benefit yes. from in terms of your experience and, and your culture. And but do you know what's exciting? I forget, I forget the time frame, but some years ago, I think it was Reconciliation Victoria organised a walk across the bridge, you know, the Sea of Hands yep. in support of Aboriginal issues. The amount of support that I saw that came from Victorians, I was just blown away. So it's about how can we create a platform for for Victorians, non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal, to ha actually be that strong voice in our space. Yeah, yeah. Well, a quick question to finish yeah. up, Katie. Oh well, I guess you know what all this sort of you know says to me is that um, you know do you think there are also times when yes we come together at, at the shared table, um, but do you think there's also a bit of an element of sometimes we need to know when to step back and accept that it's your table um, and it's and that's okay. That's exactly, I totally agree with you. <laughs> yeah. and, and I guess that's what I was sort of wanting to ask right at the beginning was, you know, with Aboriginal community controlled organisations, I guess, what do you see as their place, even if hospitals, you know, sort of the general sort of hospital system mm. got their act together and, you know, was scoring an A on the scorecard? There will always be a need because the co-ops are not just a service provider. There will always be a need for a cultural footprint on the Victorian landscape. And those co-ops are it. Um, there will always be uh, people who fall uh, through the hole, so to speak. Um, so co-ops, I believe, will never be, what's the word, become uh, redundant, redundant or not needed. Yeah, unnecessary. Regardless of whether the hospitals uh, get their act together or not. Their service delivery might change a little bit, but there will always be that need. I'm going to leave the final word to a text that's just come in that just says, you rock Jill Gallagher. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for that. And thank you, Jill, for coming in. It's been a privilege to meet you. Thank you very much, Linda. Our special guest on Ritz and Cures tonight, the CEO of VATCHO, the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Jill Gallagher, and joining Katie Miller and Associate Professor Steve Ellen on Ritz and Cures tonight. Thank you all very much for being a part of it. Thank you. 